I don't know how to describe it other than like like a demon type of sound. But it's silhouetted, hulking, every bit of five and a half feet wide, 13 to 14 foot tall, pitch black. The one thing that ran through my mind when I had this encounter was I don't have a big enough gun. Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bigfoot Breakdown. We're going to be discussing the Ruby Creek incident today. Uh, it's just David, myself. Tom has appointments with his doctor. And uh, not sure what happened to Chuck and Forrest. I know Forrest has, has to work early today. So just the two of us. But um, this story was actually written, or it's published in 1960. I think Sanderson interviewed the Chapman family in 1959. The incident itself happened 18 years earlier in 1941 in British Columbia. So we'll kind of go paragraph by paragraph or so here, and we'll just kind of we'll look at this story. So Sanderson says talks about the modern history of the Sasquatch really dates from September 1941 it's actually much earlier than that but um, he states earlier in the article he says stories of the Sasquatch have been appearing in print from time to time since the 1860s John Green actually uh, in one of his books I think the oldest one he cites is from 1811 but there were actually stories written that were much older so these, you know, these pieces of information were dated because of the time period they were printed in. So, let's go into this. He says, But the modern history of the Sasquatch really dates from September 1941. So, a very specific time period here. When one of these creatures paid a visit in broad daylight to an Indian family named Chapman. And he talks about, and you can tell again this is dated because in this time frame from the 1950s, you know, they were considering... Uh, native stories and he says it usually been dismissed as legend or laughed off because Indians are not supposed to be reliable which is totally right. untrue yeah we're part Chippewa in our family so we know that to be nonsense this experience was accompanied by too much physical evidence to be ignored and he doesn't talk about the physical evidence except for the footprints I doubt, of course, 18 years earlier, 1941, they probably didn't document any of that. But let's move on. The Chapman family consisted of George and Jeannie Chapman and children numbering at my visit four. Mr. Chapman worked on the railroad and was living at the time in a small place called Ruby Creek, 30 miles up the Fraser River from Agassiz, British Columbia, in Canada's great western province. Now, a gas is even today, it's there's not much there. You drive along the Fraser River, let's see, 30 miles up the Fraser River, that must be, uh, it's up in the direction of Harrison Hot Springs in that area, which I haven't been there for a few decades, but uh, in the 80s and very 90s. Very remote. Very remote. In the 80s and yeah. 90s, it still wasn't very big, and I'm sure it probably isn't today either. But um, so moving on. The incident, it was, happening, it was about 3 in the afternoon on a sunny, cloudless day when Jeannie Chapman's eldest son, then age 9, came running to the house saying that there was a cow coming down out of the woods at the foot of a nearby mountain. The other kids, a boy age 7 and a little girl of 5, were still playing in a field behind the house boarding on the rail track. Now, he said four children, but he only mentions three. 
so yeah. maybe maybe there was one younger that was you know an infant but he doesn't state at all so whether his count was off we don't know mrs chapman went out to look since the boy seemed oddly disturbed now if it was a cow the kid wouldn't be disturbed at all probably right right if you're nine years old you know what a cow looks like and for the fact of it being something to where he would describe it as a cow would tell me it was on all fours when it was coming down that's a great point <clears throat> you know because if it was something on two feet he wouldn't have said cow most likely and i remember right. you know we moved out onto 40 acres on the puyallup river when i was uh, about eight so we had we got cows by the time i was nine was pretty familiar with all that wouldn't have been a second thought seeing a cow you know, right. it, would, it would have had to have been something that kind of stood out in the kid's mind yeah. as being different. So let's go on. Let's see. And they saw what at first she thought was a very big bear moving about the bushes bordering the field beyond the railway tracks. She called the two children, uh, the smaller ones, the seven and the five-year-old, who came running immediately. Then the creature moved onto the tracks, and she saw to her horror that it was a gigantic man covered with hair, not fur. That's an interesting note also, because if it was a bear, it would have had fur, uh, not yeah. not hair. Yeah. Oh, okay. The hair seemed to be about four inches long all over and of a pale yellow-brown color. To pin this down, Mrs. Chapman pointed to me a sheet of uh, lightly varnished plywood in the room where we were sitting. This was of a brown ochre color. So that's kind of an odd color. I mean, it's something we hear from people on occasion. Uh, usually it's the cinnamon brown or brown or black color for a Sasquatch. But, you know, that lighter. We've had a couple people recently, witnesses, who say what they described as blondish color or light brown color. Uh, yeah, the fact, the fact that it was a, a sunny day, it makes me wonder if, it, if the sun wasn't hitting some of the highlights in the hair. And it may have been possibly a little bit darker yeah, than that's... it actually was. Yeah, that's possible, sure. Let's see. Uh, let me scroll down a little bit here. The creature advanced directly towards the house, and Mrs. Chapman had, as she put it, much too much time to look at it, because she stood her ground outside while the eldest boy, on her instructions, got a blanket from the house and rounded up the other children. The kids were in a near panic, she told us, and it took two or three minutes to get the blanket, during which time... The creature had reached the near corner of the field only about 100 feet away from her. Mrs. Chapman then spread the blanket and holding it aloft so the kids could not see the creature or it them. She backed off at the double onto the old field and down to the river out of sight, then ran with the kids downstream to the village. So it's very interesting, this behavior. She, uh, For one of two things, she held the blanket up, either so the kids could not see the creature any longer, so to kind of you know, bring their panic down somewhat, but also that the creature couldn't see the children. That it makes to me, me wonder if they haven't had something happen in the past with these things taking kids. Exactly. There's something very unusual about that behavior. It kind of, it does kind of lend itself to some pre, at least conceived idea or knowledge of something that she needed to do so the creature wouldn't see the kids. Yeah. So he goes on, he says, I asked her a leading question about the blanket. Had her purpose in using it been to prevent her kids from seeing the creature, which we just mentioned, in accord with an alleged 
uh, Indian belief that to do so brings bad luck and often death. And we've heard that in other places. Her reply was both prompt and surprising. She said that although she had heard white men tell of that belief, she had not heard it from her parents or any of her people whose advice regarding the so-called Sasquatch had been simply not to go farther than certain points up certain valleys, to run if she saw one, and not to struggle if caught, uh, if one caught her, as it might squeeze her to death by mistake. Now, that's very interesting, because I think a lot of us think that that's, that's something that natives have said, but she said that it was uh, white people telling of that. Now, they must have gotten that someplace, you know, maybe from other native groups, yeah, I've heard other Native American groups talk about if you see one, it's bad luck. If you see one, you'll die a short time later. Yeah. So they may have picked that up from other Native American tribes in that area. That's something that's a misconception, too. I think a lot of people out there think that, you know, it's kind of a one-size-fits-all with Native folks as far as yeah. what they say about the creatures, but you'll find it's different from tribe, band, or, or even family from place to place. And their experiences with them. Exactly. She says, no. She said, I used the blanket because I thought it was after one of the kids. And so might go into the house and look for them instead of following me. That's that's very pointed. She was very specific about that. She thought it was after one of the kids. And she shielded the kids from from the creature seeing them so that she thought she might draw it away herself. Right. Okay, let's see. This seems to have been sound logic as the creature did go into the house and also rummaged through an old outhouse pretty thoroughly, hauling from it a 55-gallon barrel of salted fish. Breaking this open and scattering its contents about outside. The irony of all this is that those three children did die within three years, the two boys by drowning, the little girl on a sickbed. And just after I interviewed the Chapmans, they were also drowned on the Fraser River in a rowboat capsized incident. Um, that's very sad, you know. That uh, yeah. Now you could say, well, because they saw the Sasquatch, that that's what befell <laughs> them, uh, but that was not their belief. Uh, right. Mrs. Chapman told me that the creature was about seven and a half feet tall. She could estimate its height by the various fence and line posts standing about in the field. It had a rather small head and a very short, thick neck. In fact, really no neck at all. A point was emphasized by William Rowe and by all others who claimed to have seen one of these creatures. And I can attest to that, too. I mean, the head appears to sit directly on the shoulders. You don't really see a neck. Its body was entirely human in shape. Now, it doesn't mean it was human. It was human in shape. That's a very point, very, very strong, important point to make here. Lots of people out there, you know, who don't really know that much about the creatures will make wild claims about them being a different species of human. That's not the case. They're human in shape, more so than, let's say, gorillas and chimps. Right. Um, The fact that they describe the barrel chest is something you hear a lot these days, too. Very true. He goes on to say uh, his description, its body was entirely human in shape, except that it was immensely thick through its chest and its arms. Were ex- oh, and its arms were exceptionally long. She did not see the feet as they were in the grass. Its shoulders were very wide and it had no breasts from which Mrs. Chapman assumed it was a male. Though she also did not see any male genitalia due to the long hair covering its groin. 
She was most definite on this point. The naked parts of his face and his hands were much darker than his hair and appeared to be almost black. That could be kind of a scary sight. You see something that's kind of light, light uh, brown in color, you know, in this dark face, you know, obviously not a bear or anything else that you would, uh, it would be very distinguishable from known exactly. animals. Yeah. But also a point too, when you see uh, people describe seeing genitalia, that's a common thing among genuine stories. You know, people say they, they see this stuff, you know, it's, it's genitals. I, I, I kind of have my doubts about those stories, but, uh, well, it's like with the Roger Patterson film, a lot of people point out the fact that Patty had breasts and why would these two guys, if it was a hoax, go through all the trouble of making something with breasts? Yeah. Especially in that time period. And it would have been very difficult. Yeah. So he goes on to say that George Chapman returned home from his work on the railroad that day shortly after 6 in the evening and by a route that bypassed the village so that he saw no one to tell him what had happened. When he reached his house, he immediately saw the woodshed door battered in. He spotted enormous humanoid footprints all over the place. Greatly alarmed, for he, like all of his people, had heard since childhood about the big wild men of the mountains, though he did not hear the word Sasquatch till after this incident. He called for his family, then he dashed through the house. He spotted the footprints of his wife and kids going off towards the river. He followed these until he picked them up on the sand beside the river and saw them going off downstream without any giant ones following. I'm sure he was very relieved at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says so. Somewhat relieved, he retraced his steps when he stumbled across the giant foot tracks on the riverbank farther upstream. These had come down out of the potato patch, which lay between the house and the river, had milled about by the river, then gone back through the old field towards the foot of the mountains, where they disappeared in heavy growth. Uh, I can attest to that kind of behavior. I mean, I, you know, found tracks, or my brother-in-law actually found the tracks. We went and looked, and I, I followed the tracks and found around 100 of them near a creek by the Carbon River. Um, mm-hmm. And, and you could, it was difficult to count at first because, you know, it wasn't just a straight line of tracks. When it got to an open area, they just kind of went back and forth like it had milled around there for some time. Um, yeah, you just meander all over the place. Yeah, it wasn't it, like maybe it was searching for things to eat. I, I don't know. I couldn't really tell by the footprints exactly what it was doing. That's what this gives me the impression of in this story is it was looking for something to eat. It was looking for something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, returning to the house, relieved to know the tracks of all four of his family had gone off downstream to the village, George Chapman went to examine the woodshed. In her interview after 18 years, he still expressed voluble astonishment that any, any living thing, even a 7-foot, 6-inch man with a barrel chest, could lift a 55-gallon drum of fish and break it open without using a tool. He confirmed the creature's height after finding a number of long brown hair stuck in the slab wood lintel of the dory above the level of his head. George Chapman then went off to the village to look for his family and found them in a state of calm collapse. He gathered them up and invited his father-in-law and two others to return with him for protection of his family when he was away at work. Now, this is interesting, too. Uh, the foot tracks returned every night for a week, and on two occasions, the dogs of the Chapmans had uh, taken with them to set up the most awful racket at exactly 2 o'clock in the morning. The Sasquatch, however, uh, did not molest them, the dogs, or apparently touch either the house or the woodshed. But the, whole, uh, but the whole business was too unnerving, and the family finally moved out, and they never went back. 
So one more piece for the story that uh, after a long chat about this and other matters, Mrs. Chapman suddenly told us something very significant. Just as we were leaving, she said, it made an awfully funny noise. I asked her if she could imitate this noise for me, but it was her husband who did so, saying that he had heard it at twice. Let me go back at that. Saying that he had heard it at night twice during the week after the first incident. He then proceeded to utter exactly the same strange gurgling whistle that the men in California, uh, who they said had heard a Bigfoot call and given us. So he must have had some kind of a, uh, had recordings that people had made in California. But, um, you know, it's all very interesting, the behavior. You know, they apparently felt the creatures were coming down after the children. You know, I, I had a guy who contacted me from Southern Oregon a few years back. And that was the exact situation they were experiencing was they had, uh, I believe it was five children under the age of 10. And mm-hmm. one of the creatures would come down to their house on a nightly basis and just stare through the window at the children. Yeah. And we finally, you know, we advised him of the things to do to get rid of the creatures and they did work those measures. So um, this is not something that's unheard of. Mm-mm. Nor is that whistling sound. Remember the miners in Washington, they they mentioned in their story how they would hear whistling back and forth. They did, and and there were other incidents as well. I mean, and that's what the natives always talk about, uh, you know, these creatures whistling. You yeah. know, it's not, not so much other noises that we do hear. We do hear and record other noises. However, uh, among native folks, it is, it is the whistling that's the prominent... Um, in the ceremonial masks, you want to see a yeah. ceremonial mask of a Sasquatch, you see the one with the pursed, whistling lips. Yep. Well, what are your thoughts on this before we wrap this up? I think it's factual. Um, the way they described its its demeanor, what it did, um, the way they were able to prove how tall it was by the fence post, the size of the tracks... The uh, the general description of it having a, a chest like a barrel like a chest, um, the fact that it was powerful enough to lift a 55 gallon drum full of fish and break it up without any equipment, that right there tells you this isn't a person. You know, I can tell you from the first two that I saw when I was 16. You know, I've mentioned before about how at least on the big one i I wasn't even paying attention to the second one by the time that i got to that point in the the incident the first one i noted was it was a good three feet thick from the front of its chest to its back and and it was big enough where it would easily been able to pick up a 55 gallon drum of fish without any doubt all righty well you know i think that'll do it for this session then thanks for joining us folks and uh, we'll do another interesting story next week Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there. <laughs>